Namaste, Harja Gale. This week's podcast is me and you walking through the Cumberland Mountains, County Waterford. And I'm walking up to see the Cumshigan Lake, which is the oldest glacial lake in Ireland. I'm after making a break for it, actually. Rented a car for a week. 200 quid. Nice wee golf. And I'm just slowing the pace down a little bit of everything that was going on. I've mentioned that a couple of weeks ago on the podcast that I was feeling a bit stressed out from everything that was happening and all the different projects that we had on the go at the same time. So decided to take a week of a break and rent a wee car and just uh, drive around and do some nice, nice things. I haven't had a car for two and a half years. When Ackley moved into the city centre in Cork, I also moved into the city centre and ditched the car. It's just kind of an extra expense that I didn't really need and wasn't really using the car apart from just going to Aldi and stuff once a week to get the shopping. It was just like glorified shopping trolley that was sitting in the car park. At the same time, it is nice to have a wagon for this week. I was in Belfast earlier in the week, spent a wee bit of time in Galway yesterday. Now I'm in Waterford and uh, put a nice weekend in, in just going to visit friends and stuff and hopefully get a bit of, fi- get a bit of fishing done tomorrow. Sorry, I'm sounding out of breath here. It's fucking hell is steep. Uh, anyway, I really wanted to get a podcast on this week, so I'm walking through the mountains with the Zoom H4N recorder that also has this little furry top on it. It's like a wind protector to stop all the wind sound fucking up the podcast on us I only got the little cover recently enough because I brought the Zoom to Palestine with me and the wind really gave the podcast a kick in the stones over there because there's air conditioning fans in all the rooms because it was so warm and it's quite hard to record so rookie mistake but Hopefully you're hearing this loud and clear here now. So the plan is go up here, <clears throat> spend a bit of time hiking around, sit at the lake for a while, do some meditation. And I've got a lovely uh, food from Rocketman HQ, Princess Street in Cork, in my bag, in a lunchbox. And I've got some beautiful calendar coffee in a canteen that I made earlier on as well. So... I'm going to get on with the hike here, shut this down for the time being, turn it back on in a minute. I actually got to the car park, just about to start this podcast and realised that I forgot to bring the batteries for the recorder, so there's an extra bit of a drive there to go and get that. Whew, it's windy. If this wind protector is working, happy days, because it is windy up in here and it's absolutely beautiful as well. I'm going to walk for a bit and I'll turn this back on. We'll do a bit of a podcast together. I actually don't really know much about the Comer Mountains or the Kumshigan Lake itself, except for that it's really old and very beautiful. I was here one time before and uh, a few friends did a bit of a hiking stuff, so it's class to come back to somewhere that you've been before and know where you're going, be able to do a bit more of an exploration 
know the good spots for a uh, sit down and a wee picnic. I wonder what comes she gone means. Or must be some meaning to it. I must find out. Do a bit of research when I get back. Um Whoa. There's loads of dead dead animal bones around here. It's quite wild and rocky. Loads of sheep. A little fox came up to me earlier as well. Um <clears throat> the old name place name's really interesting. Something that I'd love to learn more about. The Irish, the original place names, are often descriptive of what the place was used for, or the landscape, or the geography of the area. My granddad, Flannery, actually had a couple of books about place names and had a, a weekly article in the Irish Times. I think it was called Where's That Place? And I've got some class books that my granny gave me, the really leather bound, really old leather bound green books. And gives a really nice description of a lot of place names in Ireland. Home walking into a big herd of sheep or they've got horns. I don't know if they're goats or sheep. I think they're sheep. Hey, about just lads. How's getting on? Grand. They're good. See you later. Um, Grand wasn't temporary. Actually, tip ten which is a nice little link in time for me to say congratulations to the Tipperary Senior Hurling team who have been trained by my brother, Cara Brokarlan, the legend, and a few of the tip lads trained, whoa, a few of the tip lads uh, trained with us in Ackley and Cork, the ones that are based in Cork, trained with us there. I was at the match, it was class day out. All-Ireland final day. The whole family was there, sitting in the lower Hogan, watching Tip do the thing. Pretty about the sending off in Kilkenny, but I think Tip are going to pull the cats apart anyway. One way or another, lads, this is absolutely beautiful. There's two sheep, two sheep having a bit of an argument down there, actually, banging each other's heads. And oh, lads, talk about it. Make love, not war, lads. They're squaring up to each other look quite young one of them's bigger than the other one but the small one oh the small one's giving it to the big one that's enough there lads let's resolve this peacefully oh there's a big massive hairy sheep coming over to talk to them and sort them out that's it anyway on we go I haven't really got the, a topic as such for this week's podcast it's, I suppose it's more just recording some thoughts as I'm walking up here and you're kind of getting a bit of a inside window to uh, the ramblings of myself as I'm walking up this quite steep hill. It's very peaceful up here. One thing I've been thinking about recently, because I was talking to my good mate, Lewis Kenny who has been in Cork quite a bit, actually currently cycling around Ireland on his bike, going from place to place, meeting lovely people and getting himself into trouble. Just check him out on his Instagram account, it's Lewis Kenny Poet, I think, on Instagram. We were just talking about identity and how we can kind of assume a certain identity as people and become attached to one particular thing that 
were doing at the time. He was talking about being attached to the identity of being a poet and what that does in the short term and the long term as well, I suppose. And so this is a nice feeling to have something that you're really good at and get the attention from people who admire what you're doing or who dig, who pick up what you're putting down and stuff like that. And then the other side of it is the long-term effects of having that label and being put into a box. I could really relate to that myself because when I came to Cork first, which was back in 2010, moved down to Cork full-time. No shit there. Jim or Tat? Uh, moved down to Cork full-time and uh, wanted to just play hurling. Basically the only thing I wanted to do. I wanted to be a full-time hurling player. And Carbus was kind of did the same thing to a certain degree. And personally for me, it was like a, kind of like I thought it was like a dream come true when I was, had the opportunity. Oh, this sheep has a sore leg. <sighs> One very sore leg. Run away. Um, it uh, really good. Thought it was living the dream, and then all of a sudden got this really bad injury in my hip. It last actually lasted two or three years. Very painful. One of the kind of like an epidemic injury in GA, osteitis pubis. It's a bit of an umbrella term for hip injuries and injuries that occur around the, the various junctions of the hip, around your pubic bone and stuff like that. And I had to get a few painful procedures done to try and rectify it. But kind of really tore me to pieces back then because all of a sudden I had this identity that I'd built up for myself. I spent years playing hurling for Antrim and hurling in University of Limerick if it's given hurling and then was down in Cork playing for the Piercy and really kind of like loved doing that but basically one one injury kind of wiped that out in a way and I felt a little bit lost and then I started thinking about how how sort of superficial or fickle it can be to build yourself around an, ident- uh, an identity that's sort of kind of an external thing hurler or you know whatever the case may be artist whatever because it can get taken away fairly fast if you get sick or break a bone or something happens where you have to stop and it really got me thinking about how healthy or unhealthy that is and how much it limits a person really if, of course if you specialise in one area and that becomes your identity you get the opportunity to really specialise in that and get really good at it and it couldn't be an ambition, an ambition that you've had for a long time to excel in a certain area but I think it's also very important to keep in mind the internal value that we have there's nothing to do with what you're doing is kind of externally but that you have the spend the time and effort in yourself to I guess kind of like loving yourself in a lot of ways and giving yourself the same respect that you'd give to other people and started thinking about <clears throat> quite a dark time actually back then around 2010, 11, 12 for me because I was feeling like shit because I wasn't able to play hurling I was after moving my whole life down to Cork 
didn't really know that many people down here either. And one of the main things that got me actually uh, kept me going during that time was playing music. I used to go into the Chennai pub in Cork Friday evening. I used to meet up with a few friends on Friday, uh, early Friday evening, play some tunes, and then go into the Chennai together and play together for a while and drive home. It's really good to have that company. It also kind of was another outlet. I'd say the outlet that I pinned everything on in a way. But then I think about how I might have been coming across the other people then. Obviously it wasn't in great form and stuff like that. And it wasn't the country anything got there, I don't think, but just uh, you know, if you're not feeling great then you're probably not great company for other people either and maybe not there to help other people out if they need a bit of a hand. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of been a bit of a journey from then, uh, realising that we're not the things that we do. Uh, I think Lewis is actually telling me that someone said, maybe, can't remember who said it, but he said it, somebody else said it, that we're not nouns, like we're not things, we're not like herders, we're not poets, writers, we're people that do those things. And regardless of whether we can do the thing that we've decided we want to do or not doesn't take away from the internal value that we have or the inherent value that we have as people and I think that's an important thing to realise and also we're more versatile than we think that's kind of the reason why I started this podcast I was like for a long time building an identity as a hurling player from a very young age and was getting a lot of credit for that under 14 I was playing for Antrim under 16, 18 under 21 senior playing for UL, playing senior hurling down in Cork for a club, getting nice credit for it and kind of positive reinforcement for what we're doing. But then I suppose after that, I kind of threw myself into building Ackley as a, as a business. And I suppose in a way, maybe kind of repeated the same mistake, became a business owner as such. And uh, maybe kind of took on that particular identity. I don't think it's a completely bad thing because sometimes to make things happen, you need to put a lot of work in. You need to put the hours and the effort in, put the hard graft in to create something that hasn't, hasn't existed before then. But there definitely comes a time when you realise that you can do other stuff as well, you know. You can start a podcast, for example the Rebel Matters podcast or get involved in a kind of completely different type of project like the way that we're doing the thing around Palestine I suppose that's more of a transfer of what we've done with Ackley to another group of people that could use the skills that we're after building up over time over the years and here lads what do you hear this here there's a fox that's been following me up from the very bottom of this walk I'm up quite far here if you can hear me walking through the bushes and stuff, this fox is kind of just following me up the hill, the wee legend, whatever he's looking for, he's just coming along for the walk as well, where is he, or she, she's down there, class, oh. so I suppose the thing that I took away from all that was to realise that we have got this inherent and ingrained value as people, that can't be defined by what we do externally 
know, profession or career or whatever. It's a fairly liberating thought because it means then it opens the door for doing anything else you want. And I remember actually doing a podcast with Dan, Dan Lambert in the Bang Bang Cafe. He's overworking for the United Nations or something like that before he came back and opened the Bang Bang Cafe with his sister Grace and was involved in quite a lot of projects. And you can't have the same kind of thoughts that you can do whatever you want, basically, you know. So there are certain limits don't think I could become an astronaut at this stage <laughs> wouldn't want to become an astronaut anyway wouldn't be my wouldn't be my bag but plenty of things that I can do plenty of things that we can all do whoa back on a bit of a path here class anyway a couple of thoughts another thing that comes to mind just maybe kind of relates to the things that we choose to do or how much of an effort is required to make things happen is uh Something that I've become quite aware of in recent times is that to create something that doesn't exist before to try and break out of the mould, it requires this massive outlay of energy. Kind of like a superhuman outlay of energy. Not to say that no way saying that I'm superhuman, not in any way, shape or form. But I think that we all have the ability to get into that mode where we're just able to put this you know, explosive energy into something when we can see the purpose of it and we're passionate about it and there's a team around us as well even if there's not a team around us but if you really want to make something happen I think what's definitely happened to me over time is that you kind of start building pace like a train building pace slow, slow and then over time the pace becomes faster and faster until you're like travelling at breakneck speed and things are happening real fast and uh, whoa, I'm up quite high actually up too high you need to get back down again uh, and I think that's good for a period of time really useful to get stuff done but the other side of it is a lot of the time it's not sustainable and for sure with me I end up I kind of suppose you can end up rushing around a lot there missing things that you might otherwise have spent a bit of time with or become less aware of some stuff that's going on around or less aware of yourself and your own feelings and how you're feeling mentally with your mental health which is at the end of the day our physical and mental health are health in general is the most valuable thing that we that we have as far and slantia not untantia as the old shanuckle goes health is better than wealth i would fully agree with that at the same time i've been in conversations when people have been saying to me oh, you know i don't care about money my money doesn't do anything does i don't Money doesn't mean anything, but by and large, those are people who've got a fuckload of money and can do whatever they want anyway. And from a personal experience, money is, you can see the value of money when you need to buy food and you haven't got any, or you need to put fuel in your car to get to work and you haven't got any. But then at the same time, the other side of that is, I can clearly see the non-value of money can't buy your health can't buy your mates 
in your family. They're all things that you have to value way out above money. Things that you need to work on as well, and not, not neglect. Well, cubby hole here is getting very windy. That's it's unreal here. I'm just squatting down, looking out over this glacial lake. It's kind of in a bit of a big, massive bowl, and there's a fog descending on it. Clouds are coming down from the mountains down into the lake. It is like something out of a Finn McCooley story. Actually, it could be one of those magical fogs. You ever see the way in those Finn McCooley stories, in the folklore stories, that magical fogs befall? When people are out hunting or playing a game of hurling or walking through the hills and the next thing they wake up and 200 years have gone by and everything's fucked hopefully it's not one of those fogs or this podcast is going to be coming out whenever I wake up from it August 23rd of August 2219 and uh, I'll be 234 years old he's love how to be dead but I'll put the podcast out anyway and you'll know what I was thinking about on that day when the magical fog befell anyway what were we saying there about money yeah oh we were saying about how unsustainable it is to be kind of running on double speed all the time and I think that's part of the reason I'm after taking a week off here just trying to trying to pull the reins back a little bit and slow down a wee bit get back into nature and I suppose there's certain things that I've trying to do in the recent times I know that I know that I don't do them as often whenever I'm getting really busy I don't like cook as often don't drink as much water like don't kind of like give myself the time to settle down fill a water bottle and make sure I drink it during the day which is there's not many problems that can't be improved by drinking more water. I believe that to be true. And then, I suppose I don't, when I'm in that kind of frantic, busy phase, I kind of lose connection with my family and my friends and don't hang out with them as often and don't kind of make the time to go and visit people, which is another reason why I got that car. I said I spent, I was up in Belfast yesterday. Uh, and got to see my mum and called into the Cultural for a very short period of time and uh, gave a lovely friend a nice tour around Belfast with Podrick McCotter who has been a guest on the podcast here drove around all over Belfast went to the um, Milltown Cemetery up the Shaw's Road to the Gieltacht Houses down the Shangle up the Crumlin Road Jail Bombay Street as well, which is the 50 year anniversary of the burning of Bombay Street this year. When uh, we were talking about that on the podcast last week, and I love bringing people around Belfast. I really do. At the same time, when I'm in Belfast, I realise how fucked up the place is. Still, like it's divided. Still got that big wall down there, dividing working class Catholic areas and working class Protestant areas. And I remember looking out that window and thinking, half. The girls in Belfast are on the other side of that wall, and I'm probably never going to meet them. Actually, we went over to Holy Child, uh, uh, the Holy Cross School in Ardoin as well, in 2001, when the loyalists were throwing piss and showing pornography to schoolgirls, and there was 
Catholic school girls were, while they were walking in the school horrific to think that, that was in this time and uh, I do love Belfast but then I, I do realise how, how many problems we still have up there and hopefully um, hopefully we're moving in the right direction anyway after that trip to Belfast drove to Galway drove back to Cork then and I'm here today decided to take today to myself and tomorrow I'm going to go down and do a bit of fishing with Rory down in Bantry haven't been fishing down there in a good while I'm looking forward to hopefully catching a few mackerel and cooking those bad boys up and then on Sunday which is the last day I have the car I'm going to visit my mate Dara and Jess my mate Dara and Jess and their kids Lily and Theo have we barbecued down there I've barbecued down there with them one day for the last few years I've been down there doing a barbecue once a year great time to catch up Dara's flat out touring with Herman is green Jess is flat out with working I've gone after their two amazing wee kids it's a lovely time just to catch up and catch up and chill out basically and then back in to work on Monday and I'm really going to take on board that thing that we were talking about in the podcast last week about just having one thing just focusing on that and concentrating on it until it's done and then moving on actually reading a book by Osho at the minute that my mum got me for Christmas it's been helping with I love reading, I really do it's like a meditation, anyway this book is kind of about, I can't remember exactly the, the name of it but it's something like love relationships and aloneness or something like that but there's a wee story in it about uh, a really old monk, a master monk dies and Somebody asked one of his fellow monks what was the most important thing in his life. And the fellow monk says the thing that he was doing when he died. Which for me is a nice way of showing that he was focused or he was giving all of his attention and his awareness to the thing that he was doing at the time. I wonder what he was doing at the time. Maybe he was in his bedroom having a Tom Hank around the bathroom giving his full giving his all to the number two the last number two that he ever did in his life and when he's joking I don't mean to be disrespectful I don't think he was a real monk anyway I think it was just fiction just like a pretend monk to highlight the importance of focusing in on one thing and doing it not be thinking about a million other things when you're trying to draw a picture or something like that that's another thing actually they've been doing more and more recently and one thing I know I don't do when I'm flat out busy and I hope this podcast isn't coming across as a big whinge by me just sort of be an interesting thing to talk about I suppose or I'm just kind of thinking out loud really you may get something from it that you might be able to relate to but another thing that I kind of do less when I'm getting busier and busier is stuff that's creative I know that stuff that I'm doing for work is creative anyway you know or building a business with actually last six years trying to do it a different way with the different things that we have the book club and the movie nights and storytelling night which was the first one was a few last week and the next one's I think I'm going to put the storytelling night on the full moon that'd be nice wouldn't it storytelling at full moon anyway uh, and the podcast of course is creative pursuit Actually, to tell you the truth, I should probably try and build in 
it is a little trick to try and build it in these creative things into the day-to-day -day work week anyway but one thing that i do less of when i'm getting really busy is uh, set aside set aside time for non-work related creative activities like just drawing a picture and i'm shade at drawing pictures but i like sitting down and just drawing something simple out and calling it in or writing somebody a letter or uh, actually last week last weekend we were in a few of us in in the house on Saturday night which was uh, the day after the storytelling night and it was the same day of the lone moor which we had in the gym the communal lunch that we have inspired by our brothers and sisters in the Basque country of getting a big long table and bringing food along and everyone sharing it together as a community and getting to know each other sharing recipes sharing the crack listening to the tunes later on that night <clears throat> we went for a couple of pints of Beamish afterwards and then only one or two and then only one actually now that I think of it then we went home and because Tipper playing in the all Ireland final the next day we and Carbro was after putting in a massive effort we uh, all sat down and drew him some pictures and stuff just four of us in the house with a wee glass of wine and candle, candles lit and we, we drew some pictures and rolled them up in the scrolls and sealed them with the wax from the candles and then pushed our kind of, we all had, we all had rings on, our own rings, pushed the ring into the wax and sealed them like old style scrolls and brought them up. It was a, it was a class night, sitting there drawing pictures with pencils and pens and uh, helping each other out with what we were doing and, uh, and then giving them to the Carbra on Sunday after the match, which he was very happy with. More sheep here. So I think that the, that doing the creative stuff like that it doesn't have the pressure of a deadline or isn't connected with your work or is a really valuable thing to do as well. Probably do it more when we're busy, really. Not less. It's kind of ironic. I suppose that's where meditation comes into it. I actually got this, I'm sure you know, I've been doing the meditation bowl gong at the start of the podcast every now and again. And I got that actually because I was in, uh, in the, the Way of the West. I actually got it before Way of the West, but we're in Way of the West. A little festival down in West Cork. Uh, in, when was it, in June or something like that. And Ian Sims was there, Run Child Run on Spotify playing unbelievable music and four or five o'clock in the morning he had this sound, big massive sound bowls and did a sound bath and really beautiful meditative experience went on for like four hours but anyway I've been uh, using the sound bowl for a bit of meditation ever since then around the edge to make it a long kind of a hum like that or a bong and then just breathing and listening to the, the sound and just focusing on that one thing. I swear to God, see, after doing that, like, just feel way better, feel way, way less frantic in my mind and more clear on what I want to do. And then way more likely to uh, you know, give myself a bit of time to do a training session, which is another thing that tends to lessen a little bit whenever the busy times come around, when reality should be doing it more often, not less often. Uh, but that meditation really helps to bring an awareness to how I'm feeling and 
makes it le- more likely then for me to do the things that keep the head in check. All the things you can do to check in with yourself or get your brain to calm down or uh, you know, focus your mind on one thing. And doing creative stuff like that or doing things that are quite rhythmical tend to help with that. I suppose that's why monks and stuff like that and nuns have rosary beads. Say the rosary is kind of like a, a cycle. You keep going around and around and mantras and stuff like that as well are very cyclical and repetitive and things that are quite calm. And I actually notice I've got this habit of clicking my fingers like this, like constantly when I'm walking around, uh, thinking about something in town, or tap my finger on my leg as well. They're kind of like centering activities. Although sometimes it just looks like I have a tick. But uh, they can be quite calming. I suppose that's why. I don't do it on purpose. It just kind of happens by itself. And another thing is getting back to nature. So I'm just seeing this little stream over here. I'm going to go over here and see if I can pick up some of the sound. hope the wind isn't too bad here. But getting back to nature, what a class thing. I'm so disconnected, especially if we live in the city. I am anyway. I feel flipping miles away, living in a concrete jungle. I read a really good book called uh, Palaces for the People recently. I kind of talked a lot about social infrastructure and how it affects our health and bringing green spaces into the cities, but like, which is good, of course, but man, what we need to do, get out into the countryside, hey, listen this here, we stream. Unreal. Getting into nature is another one of those things that just is good for your soul. It's so good for your soul. I actually feel like I'm getting recharged here at the minute. There's a trig tree. This is my way of getting back into nature whilst living in the city. Fitzgerald Park in Cork City Centre. There's a massive tree down there. And uh, once or twice a week I cycle down there and climb up the tree and lie on it. Literally feel recharged after it. Whatever it is about lying on a tree, feels like we're breathing together. And good, good few people have brought up there as well. Have the chats with or have lunch with. Have a bit of crack with them up in the tree. And uh, come out. Many's a, many's a hardship has been dissolved sitting up in that tree, either thinking about myself or having a chat with someone else. And it's a nice little escape. I feel like I feel like an iPhone who's been plugged in for 45 minutes. I'm gonna come off it, refreshed, recharged. Little uh, full green battery up in the right-hand corner. But you just can't beat this. Just standing in a valley here, sheep, mountains, this glacial lake. I'm gonna get down to here now. Just had a nice bit of a picnic and we drop a coffee down by the lake there and I'm making for a trail I can see across the other side. I'm gonna try and walk up to the ridge which is kind of around surrounding the lake above it. I above and have a look at it from up there, see what it's like. This place is class lads, definitely come out here. So Another thing I was kind of thinking about talking about for today's podcast was a bit about 
um, streamlining things because for sure this podcast has taken on the theme of uh, kind of a theme of busyness as such I suppose as, as it relates to my own experience and being flat out doing stuff and trying to get a bit of peace back into the head uh, don't know if anyone ever seen that <coughs> comedy series from the 90s Belfast give my head peace from the whole the wall gang it's not in any way related just come into my head there when I said get a bit of peace back into the head just check it out I don't know if it's on YouTube or not but it's very funny kind of satirical take on all the stuff that was happening up in Belfast and running around the six counties at the time taking the piss out of ourselves but uh, yeah so I suppose this podcast has taken on a bit of a spin of ways to reconnect with ourselves and we're getting really busy and another thing actually it's not the same thing but I was just about to mention still kind of relative I feel like today I don't know if you ever feel like this but that in the kind of modern day that busyness is kind of like a badge of honour and I don't know is it a thing that's kind of ingrained in us in school or is it something that comes from industrialization or colonization where you're rewarded for your hard work and most of the time you're getting you're getting a clap you're getting a clap on the back for how how much you can suffer and how much you can work and make your fingers bleed and I know there's a lot of virtue in hard work, I believe that to be true. That putting your heart and soul into something is that you believe in it is definitely uh, as far as I can say something really rewarding and real beautiful but that's not what I'm talking about here I'm kind of talking about the culture that we have that it's nearly trendy to be busy and sometimes I feel like maybe this isn't true maybe I'm imagining it but sometimes it seems like there's a competition to see who can be the busiest in the way when people say are you busy oh I'm flat out up the walls I haven't had time to scratch my hole and then the next person will say how much more busy they are and then it's like busyness tennis and whoever's the busiest gets a nice pat on the back and a heart attack before they're 50. Woo! Windy lads! Jesus! Hope this is coming through. I haven't got earphones with me. I forgot batteries for the Zoom and earphones for my ears, so I don't even know how much <coughs> I don't even know how much the wind is affecting the how much the wind is affecting the uh, the sound quality here. Hopefully, not too much. Pull this thing down over a bit more. Uh, anyway, the show must go on, as they say. Something that I was thinking about talking about was oh, we were talking about that. Yeah, business being a badge of honor. You know, it should be a badge of honor <laughs> if we're not busy. So many things these days. 
so many inputs, so many demands. <coughs> Come on, let's go. That actually seems like a, a noble thing to not be busy for a while. Maybe next time, if you're not flat out, sometime someone asks you, are you busy? Be like, nah, I'm it. Taking it easy. Taking a time out. I grow that there. I'm gonna try it myself. But the thing that I was mentioning, got starting to mention earlier there, that I thought would be a good thing to maybe discuss on the podcast a little bit today, was the systemization, streamlining, or processes, whatever you want to call them. But from really early on, and actually I realised that having processes for things, especially things that happen over and over, are so essential on a lot of levels. First of all, they're essential so that there's consistency of service for the people who are using the business, members, that they know what to expect when they're showing up and that it's consistently of a high standard. It's also essential from a team point of view, staff, that coaches and other staff know exactly what we expect of each other, what they expect of me, what I expect of one of the coaches and any other member of staff. And uh, also, it's a way of being more efficient than we're talking about being busy. The last thing you want to do is be busy with shit that shouldn't be making you busy. One thing about getting busy making something happen that hasn't happened before, but stuff that goes on over and over, the repetitive stuff, for me, like that stuff needs to be streamlined, simplified, tested, and uh, refined as time goes on. And I'm gonna start walking up a hill here again, so I might start getting out of breath. But uh, I think that's a really important part of it. Not just for business. It's not. It's not just for business. It could be for anything that's repetitive, you know, or something that you wanna might not even enjoy that much, but just you know, it has to be done writing down the step-by-step process or getting the steps straight in your head so it takes out the thinking involved that's involved with you know if you have to do something over and over and if you're starting with a blank page every single time but the results are the same you end up with a kind of mental fatigue or decision fatigue or it's kind of like it's wasting up your brain energy for things that really once you've done them a few times, if you've processed them, maybe process, systemized them or streamlined them a bit, you should be taking less and less brain power every time. So you can keep on moving forward with the things that haven't been done yet or creative stuff or things that require more personal connection with. And I'm actually a little bit obsessed with it, to tell you the truth. Whenever I go into a cafe or a restaurant, flat out looking at like the system of how, how they what's the experience for the customer as they go in I'm like are they greeted how do they sit down when they get the menu who takes the order how the order goes into the kitchen how the orders come out of the kitchen how the bill is brought over and all that kind of stuff it makes such a big difference to the how content the team is as well and how happy the customers are when they're leaving and what happens at every stage of the every stage of the process 
for customers from the minute they walk into the business to the minute they walk out. Something that we spend a lot of time on, and actually, and I think it's really for the the long term survival of a small business. You know, I don't even I never did business or anything in school or in university. It's all just learned through practice and um, practicing self learning. You know, reading books and learning from other people and stuff like that. Ask, asking questions. But, you know, it's a lovely thing being able to set up a business and run a business that people are, are real happy with. And the systemization of that business is something that is essential for the long-term survival because you can keep putting in those massive bursts of energy for a given amount of time. And then by the end of that cycle of energy, you want to have something set up that's running in a way smoother way than it was whenever you started. Otherwise, you're just going to burn out and feel a sense of pressure and impending doom, which nobody wants. Uh, another thing that's been mentioned on the podcast before is the, that, a, that a business should be mutually beneficial for everyone who's involved in it and I think it's important to, to acknowledge what the different, you know, the different, uh, I don't know what you call them, stakeholders, it sounds like a very corporate kind of a term, but the different interests in the business, like the the clients or the customers and the staff and the, the people who are uh, running the different aspects of the business, what, what they all want to get from it, because at the end of the day, from the staff to the management and the clients and the other people who have interactions with any business all have a, a sort of a selfish interest or a, a vested interest in getting something from that. And for me, it's important to take stock of what that is for everybody. People are there that want to build a career in strength and conditioning. Other people are there that want to be a part of a a small community or feel like they're connected with other people who are quite similar to them people who want to feel like they're given equal opportunities of participation others who want some technical help with their training others who want to lose weight others who want to become better at their sport <clears throat> and I guess there's a lot of irons in the fire there and the magic happens whenever you can systemize stuff around the business so that you have enough mental bandwidth and creative space to cater for all those errands and acknowledge what everybody wants to get from the business and build the systems to help to satisfy those those needs and those wants of everyone who's involved in the business. A business you know, should also be beneficial for the community that's, that it's in. You know, if, you're, if, it, if it's a brick and mortar business and it's based somewhere in a city or in the countryside or river in a neighbourhood should be a, an added benefit to the community for the by the very existence of that business in the place and I think that's one thing that a lot of big corporate businesses just don't do you know they take a lot a lot, lot more than they give and as a, as a small business and actually like that's, I think I'm quite proud of the fact that we have the book club and the loan more and the moving nights and now the storytelling as an add-on to, not an add-on, as a, a sort of 
and in addition to the, the personal training that we do, the personal training is very professional and high standard services. I think I'm pretty sure it, it is for sure. Um, we're always improving it, but I know it's a high standard of a service, and the other stuff is always free around it, and people can come in and take part. People are welcome to come and sit in our social space in the back room. Anytime they want to come in and chill out, take a little time out, read a book. We've got a library there as well. And I look at the kind of contribution that, that I feel that we're making to our media community compared to the contribution that big corporate companies make. Sometimes I think we're doing a better job than the big multi-billion euro companies that we have. But could be wrong. I could be wrong. Anyway, one way or another, I feel like that a business is important that it is a positive influence on the community that's around it or it's contributing, contributing something positive to the community. And that's a part of the cycle as well. I'm just making my way back down the, from the ridge over the lake there now. Um, just, it's actually harder coming down and going up, I think. You're a bit more careful with your footing and stop yourself from turning the human tumbleweed flying down the side of the mountain. Uh, anyway, I'm not sure how long or how much of the stuff I recorded there is going to be use- usable because of the wind. It's a true test of this little furry microphone cover. But I'm going to go home and have a listen, edit them all together and stick them out there for you all to listen to. Hopefully most of it comes out and thanks a million for listening as usual. Thanks a million for being a part of the podcast and also thanks to everyone who's been supporting the podcast on Patreon. I really appreciate it. I've got some big plans for the Rebel Matters podcast in the coming weeks and months. So all the Patreon contributions and the support messages and the showers on social media are all helping me big time those plans in the action so I'm going to turn this off here now and try and navigate my way down this hill it is windy as anything up here at the minute I was up at the top had to take shelter and we behind a, a big rock for a while and just actually wrote a wee letter and did a bit of meditation and had a piece of a brownie, which was really nice. Now I'm going to get my way back down here. So here, let me know what you think about these walkabout podcasts. Uh, you know, on social media or whatever. And uh, I'm going to go home and edit these bits. I'm going to do the next chapter of Roald Dahl's book of stories from his childhood. So stay tuned after the, the outro music and you'll get a nice wee relaxing chapter or two of Roald Dahl into your earphones. And I'll be back next week with a podcast. I don't know what it's going to be yet because I haven't got one recorded and I haven't got one lined up, but I'm going to find someone to interview or a topic to talk about. And there will be a Rebel Matters podcast next Friday. So tune into that there. And keep sharing the love around. Uh, hope, hopefully, like, got something useful out of this. If anything, look after yourself and look after those around you. And uh, be kind to yourselves and others. I'll do my best to be kind to myself and others. And, uh, Fucking Chucky Arla. Slang of
This is the bit of the podcast where I read you a bit of a story and the book that we're reading at the minute is Boy Tales of Childhood by Roald Dahl. We're on chapter 3 at the minute. The first two chapters are at the end of the previous two podcasts. So if you want to listen to those, you can go back. And if you don't want to listen to the episode and you just want to catch up on the bedtime reading then you can just skip to the last couple of minutes this third chapter is called Landoff Cathedral School 1923 to 1925 and it's when Roald Dahl was between the ages of 7 and 9 just to set the scene for you as I'm in the Rebel Matters studio at the minute I've got candles lit so I'm reading by candlelight I've got a glass of red wine and if you listen to the episode that has just gone by you'll know that it was up the Cumberland Mountains today and I'm short and washed and just chilling out and I'm going to read this this book to you um, I normally just read one chapter but I think I'll just start reading and keep going for a little bit longer this time because the atmosphere here is so relaxing so take a wee chill out and uh, kick back and listen to a few stories from Roald Dahl's childhood this first chapter of the section about his time in the land of cathedral school is called the bicycle and sweet shop when I was seven my mother decided I should leave kindergarten and go to a proper boys' school. By good fortune, there existed a well-known preparatory school for boys about a mile from our house. It was called Landoff Cathedral School, and it stood right under the shadow of Landoff Cathedral. Like the, th- like the cathedral, the school is still there and still flourishing. But here again, I can remember very little about the two years I attended Landoff Cathedral School, between the age of seven and nine. Only two moments remain clearly in my mind. The first lasted not more than five seconds, but I will never forget it. It was my first term, and I was walking home alone across the village green after school when suddenly one of the senior 12-year-old boys came riding full speed down the road on his bicycle, about 20 yards away from me. (coughs) The road was on a hill, and the boy was going down the slope, and as he flashed by, he started backpedalling very quickly so that the freewheeling mechanism of his bike made a loud whirring sound. At the same time, he took his hands off the handlebars and folded them casually across his chest. I stopped dead and stared after him. How wonderful he was. How swift and brave and graceful in his long trousers with bicycle clips around them and his scarlet school cap at a jaunty angle on his head. One day, I told myself, one glorious day, I will have a bike like that and I will wear long trousers and bicycle clips with my school cap and my school cap will sit jauntily on my head and I will go whizzing down the hill, pedalling backwards with no hands on the handlebars. I promise you that if someone had caught me by the shoulder at that moment and said to me, what is your greatest wish in life, little boy? What is your absolute ambition? To be a doctor, a fine musician, a painter, a writer, or the Lord Chancellor? I would have answered without hesitation that my only ambition, my hope, my longing was to have a bike like that and to go whizzing down the hill with no hands on the handlebars. It would be fabulous. 
It made me tremble just to think about it. My second and only other memory of Landaff Cathedral School is extremely bizarre. It happened a little over a year later, when I was just nine. By then, I had made some friends, and when I walked to school in the morning, I would start out alone but would pick up four other boys of my own age along the way. After school was over, the same four boys and I would set out together across the village green and through the village itself, heading for home. On the way to school and on the way back, we always passed the sweet shop. No, we didn't. We never passed it. We always stopped. We lingered outside its rather small window, gazing in at the big glass jars full of bullseyes and old-fashioned humbugs and strawberry bonbons and glacier mints and acid drops and pear drops and lemon drops and all the rest of them. Each of us received sixpence a week for pocket money and whenever there was any money in our pockets we would all troop in together to buy a pennyworth of this or that. My own favourites were sherbet suckers and licorice bloodlaces. One of the other boys, whose name was Thwaites, told me I should never eat licorice bootlaces. Thwaites' father, who was a doctor, had said they were made from rat's blood. The father had given his young son a lecture about licorice bloodlaces when he caught him eating one in bed. Every rat catcher in the country, the father had said, takes his rats to the licorice bootlace factory and the manager pays tuppence for each rat. Many a rat catcher has become a millionaire by selling his dead rats to the factory. But how do they... How do they turn the rats into licorice? The young Thwaites had asked his father. They wait until they've got 10,000 rats, the father had answered, and they dump them all in a huge shiny steel cauldron and boil them up for several hours. Two men stir the bubbling cauldron with long poles and in the end they have a thick steaming rat stew. After that, a cruncher is lowered to the cauldron to crunch the bones and what's left is a pulpy substance called rat mash. Yes, but how did they turn that into licorice bootlaces, daddy? The young Thwaites had asked. And this question, according to Thwaites, had caused his father to pause and think for a few moments before he answered it. At last he said, The two men who were doing the stirring with the long poles now put on their Wellington boots and climb into the cauldron and shovel the hot rat mash out onto a concrete floor. Then they run a steamroller over it several times to flatten it out. What it's left... What is left looks rather like a gigantic black pancake and all they have to do after that is to wait for it to cool and to harden so they can cut it up into strips to make the bootlaces. Don't ever eat them, the father had said. If you do, you'll get ratitis. What is ratitis, daddy? Young Thwaites had asked. All the rats that the rat catchers catch are poisoned with rat poison, the father had said. It's the rat poison that gives you ratitis. Yes, but what happens to you when you catch it? Young Thwaites had asked. Your teeth become very sharp and pointed, the father had answered, and a short stumpy tail grows out of your back just above your bottom. There is no cure for arthritis. I ought to know. I am a doctor. We all enjoyed Thwaites' story and we made him tell it to us many times on our walks to and from school, but it didn't stop any of us except for Thwaites from buying licorice bootlaces. At two for a penny, they were the best value in the shop. A bootlace, in case you haven't had the pleasure of handling one, is not round. It's like a flat black tape about half an inch wide. You buy it rolled up in a coil and in those days it used to be so long that when you unrolled it and held it, held one end at arm's length above your head, the other end touched the ground. Sherbet suckers were also two a penny. Each sucker consisted of a yellow cardboard tube filled with a sherbet powder. 
and there was a hollow licorice straw sticking out of it. Rat's blood again, young Thwaites would warn us, pointing at the licorice straw. You sucked the sherbet up through the straw, and when it was finished, you ate the licorice. They were delicious, those sherbet suckers. The sherbet fizzed in your mouth, and if you knew how to do it, you could make white froth come out of your nostrils and pretend that you were throwing a fit. Gobstoppers, consisting or costing a penny each, were enormous hard round balls the size of small tomatoes. One gobstopper would provide about an hour's worth of non-sap sucking. And if you took it out of your mouth and inspected it every five minutes or so, you would find that it had changed colour. There was something fascinating about the way that it went from pink to blue to green to yellow. We used to wonder how in the world the gobstopper factory managed to achieve this magic. How does it happen? We would ask each other. How can they make it keep changing colour? It's your spit that does it, young Thwaites proclaimed. As the son of a doctor, he considered himself to be an authority on all things that had to do with the body. He could tell us about scabs and when they were ready to be picked off. He knew why a black eye was blue and why blood was red. It's your spit that makes a gobstopper change colour, he kept insisting. When we asked him to elaborate on this theory, he answered, you wouldn't understand if I did tell you. Pear drops were exciting because they had a dangerous taste. They smelled of nail varnish and they froze the back of your throat. All of us were warned against eating them and the result was that we ate them more than ever. Then there was a hard brown lozenge called the tonsil tickler. The tonsil tickler tasted and smelled very strongly of chloroform. We had not the slightest doubt that these things were saturated in the dreaded anaesthetic which, as Swates had many times pointed us to us, could put you to sleep for hours at a a stretch. If my father has to saw off somebody's leg, he said, he pours chloroform onto a pad and the person sniffs it and goes to sleep and my father saws off his leg without him even feeling it. But why do they put it into sweets and sell them to us? We asked him. You might think a question like that would have baffled Thwaites, but Thwaites was never baffled. My father says tonsil ticklers were invented for dangerous prisoners in jail, he said. They gave them one with each meal and the chloroform makes them sleepy and stops them rioting. Yes, we said, but why sell them to children? It's a plot, Thwaites said, a grown-up plot to keep us quiet. The sweet shop in Landoff in the year 1923 was the very centre of our lives. To us, it was what a bar is to a drunk or a church is to a bishop. Without it, there would have been little to live for. But it had one terrible drawback, this sweet shop. The woman who owned it was a horror. We hated her and we had a good reason for doing so. Her name was Mrs Pratchett. She was a small skinny old hag with a moustache on her upper lip and a mouth as sour as a green gooseberry. She never smiled. She never welcomed us when we went in and the only time she spoke was was when she said things like I'm watching you so keep your thieving fingers off them chocolates or I don't want you in here just to look around. Either you forks or you gets out. But by far the most loathsome thing about Mrs Pratchett was the filth that clung around her. Her apron was grey and greasy. Her blouse had bits of breakfast all over it toast crumbs and tea stains and splotches of dried egg yolk. It was her hands, however, that disturbed us most. They were disgusting. They were black with dirt and grime. They looked as though they had been putting lumps of coal on the fire all day long. And do not forget, please, that it was these very hands and fingers that she plunged into the sweet jars when we asked for a pennyworth of treacle toffee or wine gums or nut clusters or whatever. There were precious few health laws in those days and nobody, least of all Mrs Pratchett, 
ever thought of using a little shovel for getting out the sweets as they do today. The mere sight of her grimy right hand with its black fingernails digging an ounce of chocolate fudge out of a jar would have caused a starving tramp to go running from the shop. But not us. Sweets were our lifeblood. We would have put up with far worse than that to get them. So we simply stood and watched in sullen silence while this disgusting old woman stirred around and inside the jars with her foul fingers. The other thing we hated about Mrs. Pratchett was for her was for her meanness. The other thing we hated Mrs. Pratchett for was her meanness. Unless you spent the whole sixpence all in one go, she wouldn't give you a bag. Instead, you got your sweets twisted up in a small piece of newspaper, which she tore off a pile of old daily mirrors lying on the counter. So you can well understand that we had it in for Mrs. Pratchett in a big way, but we didn't quite know what to do about it. Many schemes were put forward, but none of them was any good. None of them, that is, until suddenly, one memorable afternoon, we found the dead mouse. The Great Mouse Plot My four friends and I had come across a a loose floorboard at the back of the classroom and when we prized it open with a blade of a pocket knife we discovered a big hollow space underneath. This, we decided, would be our secret hiding place for sweets and other small treasures such as conkers and monkey nuts and bird's eggs. Every afternoon, when the last lesson was over the five of us would wait until the classroom had emptied. Then we would lift up the floorboard and examine our secret hoard, perhaps adding to it or taking something away. One day, when we lifted it up, we found a dead mouse lying around our treasures. It was an exciting discovery. Thwaites took it out by its tail and waved it in front of our faces. What shall we do with it? He cried. It stinks, someone shouted. Throw it out the window quickly. Hold on a tick, I said. Don't throw it away. Thwaites hesitated. They all looked at me. When writing about oneself, one must strive to be truthful. Truth is more important than modesty. I must tell you, therefore, that it was I and I alone who had the idea for the great and daring mouse plot. We all have our moments of brilliance and glory, and this was mine. Why don't we, I said, slip it into one of Mrs. Pratchett's jars of sweets? Then, when she puts her dirty hands in to grab a handful, she'll she'll grab a stinky dead mouse instead. The other four stared at me in wonder. Then, as the sheer genius of the plot began to sink in, they all started grinning. They slapped me on the back. They cheered me and danced around the classroom. We'll do it today, they cried. We'll do it on the way home. You had the idea, they said to me, so you can be the one to put the mouse in the jar. Thwaites handed me the mouse. I put it into my trouser pocket. Then the five of us left the school, crossed the village green and headed for the sweet shop. We were tremendously jazzed up. We felt like a gang of desperados setting out to rob a train or blow up the sheriff's office. Make sure you put it into a jar, which is used often, somebody said. I'm putting it in the gobstoppers, I said. The gobstopper jar is never behind the counter. I've got a penny, Thwaites said, so I'll ask for one sherbet sucker and one bootlace, and while she turns around to get them, you slip the mouse in quickly with the gobstoppers. Thus, everything was arranged. We were strutting a little as we entered the shop. We were the victors now, and Mrs. Pratchett was the victim. She stood behind the counter, and her small, malignant pig eyes watched us suspiciously as we came forward. One sherbet sucker, please, Thwaites said to her, holding out his penny. 
I kept to the rear of the group, and when I saw Mrs. Pratchett turn her head away for a couple of seconds to fish a sherbet sucker out of the box, I lifted the heavy glass lid of the gobstopper jar and dropped the mouse in. Then I replaced the lid as silently as possible. My heart was thumping like mad and my hands had gone all sweaty. And one bootlace, please, I heard through it saying. When I turned around, I saw Mrs. Pratchett holding out the bootlace in her filthy fingers. I don't want all the lot of you trooping in here if only one of you is banned, she screamed at us. Now beat it, go on, get out. As soon as we were outside, we broke into a run. Did you do it? They shouted at me. Of course I did, I said. Well done you, they cried. What a super show. I felt like a hero. I was a hero. It was, mar- was marvellous to be so popular. Mr. Coombs. The flush of triumph over the dead mouse was carried forward into the next morning as we all met again to walk to school. Let's go in and see if it's still in the jar, somebody said as we approached the sweet shop. Don't, Thwaite said firmly. It's too dangerous. Walk past as though nothing happened. As we came level with the shop, we saw a cardboard notice hanging on the door. Closed. We stopped and stirred. We had never known the sweet shop to be closed at this time in the morning, even on Sundays. What happened, we asked each other. Who's going on? What, what's going on? We pressed our faces against the window and looked inside. Mrs. Pratchett was nowhere to be seen. Look, I cried, the gobstopper jar's gone. It's not on the shelf. There's a gap where it used to be. It's on the floor, someone said. It's smashed to bits and there's gobstoppers everywhere. There's the mouse, someone else shouted. We could all see it all. The huge glass jar smashed to smithereens with the dead mouse lying in the wreckage and hundreds of many coloured gobstoppers littering the floor. She's got such a shock when she grabbed the hold of the mouse that she's dropped everything, somebody was saying. But why why didn't she sweep it all up and open the shop, I asked. Nobody answered me. We turned away and walked towards the school. All of a sudden, we had begun to feel slightly uncomfortable. There was something not quite right about the shop being closed. Even Thwaites was unable to offer a reasonable explanation. We became silent. There was a faint scent of danger in the air now. Each one of us had caught a whiff of it. Alarm bells were beginning to ring faintly in our ears. After a while, Thwaites broke the silence. She must have got one heck of a shock, he said. He paused. We all looked at him, wondering what wisdom the great medical authority was going to come out with next. After all, he went on, to catch hold of a dead mouse when you're expecting to catch hold of a gobstopper must be a pretty frightening experience. Don't you agree? Nobody answered him. Well now, Thwaites went on, when an old person like Mrs. Pratchett suddenly gets a very big shock, I suppose you know what happens next. What, we said, what happens? You ask my father, Thwaites said, he'll tell you. You tell us, we said. It gives her a heart attack, Thwaites announced. Her heart stops beating and she's dead in five seconds. For a moment or two, my own heart stopped beating. Thwaites pointed a finger at me and said darkly, I'm afraid you've killed her. Me, I cried. Why just me? It was your idea, he said. And what's more, you put the mouse in. All of a sudden, I was a murderer. At exactly that point, we heard the school bell ringing in the distance and we had to gallop off. We had to gallop the rest of the way as to not so as to not be late for prayers. Prayers were held in the assembly hall. We all perched in in rows and wooden benches while the teachers sat up on the platform and armchairs facing us. The five of us scrambled into our places just as the headmaster marched in, followed by the rest of the staff. 
The headmaster is the only teacher in Landaff Cathedral School that I can remember. And for a reason you will soon discover. I can remember him very clearly indeed. His name was Mr. Coombs. And I have a picture in my mind of a giant man with a face like a ham and a mass of rusty coloured hair that sprouted in a tangle all over the top of his head. All grown-ups appear as giants to small children. But headmasters and policemen are the biggest giants of all and acquire a marvellously exaggerated stature. It is possible that Mr. Coombs was a perfectly normal being, but in my memory he was a giant. A tweed-suited giant who always wore a black gown over his tweeds and a waistcoat under his jacket. Mr. Coombs now proceeded to mumble through the same old prayers he had every day. But this morning, when the last Amen had been spoken, he did not turn and lead his group rapidly out of the hall as usual. He remained standing before us, and it was clear he had an announcement to make. The whole school is to go out and line up around the playground immediately, he said. Leave your books behind, and no talking. Mr. Coombs was looking grim. His hammy pink face had taken on that dangerous scowl which only appeared when he was extremely cross and somebody was for the high jump. I sat there small and frightened amongst the rows and rows of other boys and to me at that moment the headmaster with his black gown draped over his shoulders was like a judge at a murder trial. He's after the killer, Thwaites whispered to me. I began to shiver. I'll bet the police are here already, Thwaites went on. And the Black Marie is waiting outside. As we made our way out to the playground, my whole stomach began to feel as though it was slowly filling up with swirling water. I'm only eight years old, I told myself. No little boy of eight years has ever murdered anyone. It's not possible. Out in the playground, on this warm, cloudy September morning, the deputy headmaster was shouting, Line up in forms, sixth form over there, fifth form next to them, spread out, spread out. Get on with it. Stop talking, all of you. Thwaites and I and my other three friends were in the second form, the lowest but one, and we lined up against the red brick wall of the playground, shoulder to shoulder. I can remember that when every boy in the school was in his place, the line stretched right round the four sides of the playground, about 100 small boys altogether, aged between 6 and 12, all of us wearing identical grey shorts and grey blazers and grey stockings and black shoes. Stop that talking, shouted the deputy head. I want absolute silence. But why, for heaven's sake, were we in the playground at all, I wondered. And why were we lined up like this? It had never happened before. I half expected to see two policemen come bounding out, policemen come bounding out of the school to grab me by the arms and put handcuffs on my wrists. A single door led out from the school onto the playground. Suddenly it swung open and through it, like the angel of death strode Mr. Coombs, huge and bulky in his tweed suit and black gown, and beside him, believe it or not, right beside him, trotted the tiny figure of Mrs. Pratchett herself. Mrs. Pratchett was alive. The relief was tremendous. She's alive, I whispered to Thwaites, standing next to me. I didn't kill her. Thwaites ignored me. We'll start over here, Mr. Coombs was saying to Mrs. Pratchett. He grasped her by one of her skinny arms and led her over to where the sixth form was standing. Then, still keeping hold of her arm, he proceeded to lead her at a brisk walk down the line of boys. It was like someone inspecting the troops. What on earth are they doing? I whispered. Thwaites didn't answer me. I glanced at him. He had gone rather pale. 
Too big, I heard Mrs. Pratchett saying. Much too big. It's none of this lot. Let's have a look at some of them titchy ones. Mr. Coombs increased his pace. We'd better go all the way round, he said. He seemed in a hurry to get it over with now, and I could see Mrs. Pratchett's skinny goat's legs trotting to keep up with him. They had already inspected one side of the playground where the sixth form and half the fifth form were standing. We watched them moving down the second side, then the third side. Still too big, I heard Mrs. Pratchett croaking. Much too big. Smaller than these. Much smaller. Where's them nasty little ones? They were coming closer to us now. Closer and closer. They were stirring on the fourth side. They were starting on the fourth side. Every boy in our farm was watching Mr. Coombs and Mrs. Pratchett as they came walking down the lane towards us. Nasty, cheeky lot, these little ones, I heard Mrs. Pratchett muttering. They comes into my shop and they thinks they can do it, what they what they damn well likes. Mr. Coombs made no reply to this. They nick things when I ain't looking, she went on. They put their grubby hands all over everything and they've got no manners. I don't mind girls. I never have no trouble with girls. But boys is hideous and horrible. I don't have to tell you that, Edmaster, do I? These are the smaller ones, Mr. Coombs said. I could see Mrs. Pratchett's piggy little eyes staring hard at the face of each boy she passed. Suddenly, she let out a high-pitched yell and pointed a dirty finger straight at Twits. That's him, she yelled. That's one of them. I'd know it. I'd know him a mile away, the scummy little bounder. The entire school turned to look at Twits. Oh, what have I done? He stuttered, appealing to Mr. Coombs. Shut up, Mr. Coombs said. Mrs. Pratchett's eyes flickered over and settled on my own face. I looked down and studied the black asphalt surface of the playground. Here's another of them. I heard her yelling. That's one there. She was pointing at me now. You're quite sure, Mr. Coombs said. Of course I'm sure, she cried. I never forget a face, least of all when it's as sly as that. He's one of them all right. There was five altogether. Now where's them other, one, other three? The other three, as I knew very well, were coming up next. Mrs. Pratchett's face was glimmering with venom as her eyes travelled beyond me down the line. There they are, she cried out, stabbing the air with her finger. I'm... Im and im and im. That's the five of them, all right. We don't need to look no further than this, Edmaster. They're all here, the nasty, dirty little pigs. You've got their names, have you? I've got their names, Mr. Pratchett, Mr. Coombs told her. I'm much obliged to you. And I'm much obliged to you, Edmaster, she answered. As Mr. Coombs led her right across the playground, we heard her saying, Right in the jar of gobstoppers it was, a stinking dead mouse, which I will never forget as long as I live. You have my deepest sympathy, Mr. Coombs was muttering. Talk about shocks, she went on. When my fingers caught hold of that nasty, soggy, stinking dead mouse, her voice trilled away as Mr. Coombs led her quickly through the door into the school building. Mrs. Pratchett's Revenge Our form master came into the classroom with a piece of paper in hand. The following are to report to the headmaster's study at once. He said, Thwaites, Dal, and then he read out the other three names which I have forgotten. The five of us stood up and left the room. We didn't speak as we made our way down the long corridor into the headmaster's private quarters where the dreaded study was situated. Thwaites knocked on the door. Enter. We sidled in. The room smelled of leather and tobacco. Mr. Coombs was standing in the middle of it, dominating everything. A giant of a man, if ever there was one. 
and in his hands he held a yellow, a long yellow cane which curved around the top like a walking stick. I don't want any lies, he said. I know very well you did it, and you were all in it together. Line up over there against the bookcase. We lined up. Thwaites in front of I, for some reason. Thwaites in front, and I, for some reason, at the very back. I was the last in line. You, Mr. Coombe said, pointing the cane at Thwaites. Come over here. Thwaites went forward very slowly. Bend over, Mr. Coombe said. Thwaites bent over. Our eyes were riveted on him. We were hypnotised by it all. We knew, of course, that the boys got the cane now and again, but we'd never heard of anyone being made to watch. Tighter, boy, tighter, Mr. Coombe snapped out. Touch the ground. Thwaites touched the carpet with the tips of his fingers. Mr. Coombe stood back and took up a firm stance with his legs well apart. I thought how small Thwaites' bottom looked and how very tight it was. Mr. Coombs had his eyes focused squarely upon us. He raised the cane high above his shoulder and as he brought it down it made a loud swishing sound. And then there was a crack like a pistol shot as it struck Thwaites' bottom. Little Thwaites seemed to lift about a foot into the air and he yelled, Ow! And straightened up like elastic. Order! shrieked the voice from over the counter. Now it was our turn to jump. We looked round and there, sitting in the corner of Mr. Coombe's big leather armchairs, was the tiny, loathsome figure of Mrs. Pratchett. She was bounding up and down with excitement. Lay it into him, she was shrieking. Lay it into him. Let them have it. Teach him a lesson. Get down, boy, Mr. Coombs ordered. And stay down. You get an extra one every time you straighten up. That's telling them, shrieked Mrs. Pratchett. That's telling them, the little blader. I could hardly believe what I was saying. It was like some awful pantomime. The violence was bad enough and being made to watch it was even worse. But with Mrs. Pratchett in the audience, the whole thing became a nightmare. Swish crack, went the cane. Ow, yelled Thwaites. Arr, shrieked Mrs. Pratchett. Stitch him up. Make it sting. Tickle him good and proper. Warm his backside for him. Go on, warm it up. Headmaster. Thwaites received four strokes. (laughs) And by <laughs> Thwaites received <laughs> Thwaites received four strokes and by gum they were four real whoppers. Next snapped Mr. Coombs. Thwaites came hopping past us on his toes, clutching his bottom with both hands and yelling, Ow! Ouch! Ouch! With tremendous reluctance, the next boy sidled forward to his fate. I stood there wishing I hadn't been last in line. The watching and waiting were probably even greater torture than the event itself. Mr. Coombe's performance at the second time was the same as the first. So was Mrs. Pratchett's. She kept up her screeching all the way through, exhorting Mr. Coombs to greater and greater efforts, and the awful thing was that he seemed to be responding to her cries. He was like an athlete who was spurred on by one of the shouts of the crowd in the stand. Whether this was true or not, I was sure of one thing. He wasn't weakening. My own turn came at last. My mind was swimming and my eyes had gone all blurry as I went forward to bend over. I can remember wishing my mother would suddenly come bursting into the room shouting stop how dare you do that to my son but she didn't 
All I heard was Mrs. Pratchett's dreadful, high-pitched voice behind me screeching. This one's the cheekiest of the bloomin' lot, Edmaster. Make sure you let him have it good and strong. Mr. Coombs did just that. As the first stroke... <laughs> as the first stroke landed and the pistol crack sounded, I was thrown forward so violently that if my fingers hadn't been touching the carpet, I think I would have fallen flat on my face. As it was, I was able to catch myself on the palms of my hands and keep my balance. At first, I heard only the crack and felt absolutely nothing at all, but a fraction of a second later came the burning sting that flooded across my buttocks. It was so terrific that all I could do was gasp. I gave a great gushing gasp that emptied my lungs of every breath of air that was in them. It felt, I promise you, as though someone had laid a red-hot poker against my flesh and was pressing down on it hard. The second stroke was worse than the first, and this was probably because Mr. Coombs was well-practiced and had a splendid aim. He was able, so it seemed, to land the second one almost exactly across the narrow line where the first one had struck. It's bad enough when the cane lands on fresh skin, but when it comes down on bruised and wounded flesh, the agony is unbelievable. The third one seemed even worse than the second. Whether or not the wily Mr. Coombs had chalked the cane beforehand and had thus made an aiming mark on my grey flannel shorts after the first stroke, I did not know. I am inclined to doubt it because he must have known that this was a practice much frowned upon by headmasters in general in those days. It was not only regarded as unsporting, it was also an admission that you were not an expert at the job. By the time the fourth stroke was delivered, my entire backside seemed to be going up in flames. Far away in the distance, I heard Mr. Coombs' voice saying, Now get out! As I limped across the study, clutching my buttocks hard with both hands, a crackling sound came from the armchair over, the, over in the corner, and then I heard the vinegary voice of Mrs. Pratchett saying, I am much obliged to you, Edmaster. Very much obliged. I don't think we are going to see any more stinking mice in my gobstoppers from now on. When I returned to the classroom, my eyes were wet with tears and everybody stared at me. My bottom hurt when I sat down at my desk. That evening, after supper, my three sisters had their baths before me. Then it was my turn. But as I was about to step into the bathtub, I heard a horrified gasp from my mother behind me. What's this? She gasped. What's happened to you? She was staring at my bottom. I found I myself had not inspected it up to then. But when I twisted my head around and took a look at one of my buttocks, I saw the scarlet strips and a deep blue bruising in between. Who did this? My mother cried. Tell me at once. In the end, I had to tell her the whole story. While my three sisters, aged nine, six and four, stood around in their nighties, listening Google-eyed, my mother heard me out in silence. She asked no questions. She just let me talk. And then, when I had finished, she said to our nurse, you get them into bed, nanny. I'm going out. If I had had the slightest idea, idea of what she was going to do next, I would have tried to stop her, but I hadn't. She went straight downstairs and put on her hat. Then she marched out of the house, down the drive and onto the road. I saw her through my bedroom window as she went out of the gates and turned left, and I remembered calling out to her to come back, come back, come back. But she took no notice of me. She was walking very quickly, with her head held high and her body erect. And by the looks of things, I figured that Mr. Coombs was in for a hard time. About an hour later, my mother returned and had come upstairs to kiss us all goodnight. I wish you hadn't done that, I said to her. It makes me look silly. They don't beat small children, children like that where I come from, she said. I won't allow it. What did Mr. Coombs say to you, Mama? 
He told me I was a foreigner and I didn't understand how British schools were run, she cried. Did he get ready with you? Very ready, she said. He told me that if I didn't like his methods, I could take you away. What did you say? I said I would, as soon as the school year is finished. I shall find you an English school this time, she said. Your father was right. English schools are the best in the world. Does that mean I'll be at a boarding school, I asked. It'll have to be, she said. I'm not quite ready to move the whole family to England yet. So I stayed on at Landoff Cathedral School until the end of the summer term.